This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. The University of Dallas invites you to check out their free five-episode video series, The Quest, at the link in the show notes, or at udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, you're going to have to—I'm going to really be counting on you this uh, this show. I, I, you've got a big job, this show, because I am— a bit under the weather, but the show must go on. And so I am both here and not here, and I have just a lot of things going on right now. So this is going to be a big, big day for you. Uh, I don't, I don't think that's likely how it how it's likely <laughs> to shake out. But um, Christ is risen, JD. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. He is risen indeed. I I pray that you're having a wonderful Easter week. Uh, it's been a little frantic. Oh, how so? Actually. I'm just, you know, uh, that's going on. We've had um, not quite a full working week because we took, mon- well, I took Monday off. You took parts of Monday off. Um, well, stuff to do, buddy. But no, it's it's a, uh, no, it's just been a, it's been a busy week. Lots of lots of goings and comings. Uh, we've had we've had um, people staying with us. We've had friends from out of town coming through town. Uh, there was an anniversary mass I went to for a friend of mine. Yeah, I wanted to go last night. Just. A lot of things. A lot of things, JD. Well, it's uh, it's been a full week, as as Easter week should be full. At, it is a full as week. it should, uh, as it should, and indeed, as um, thanks be to God that it has been. My Easter week has been a little less full, I suspect, because I've been under the weather for a couple of days. I'm gonna. You're not gonna hear me cough a lot on the show because I'm just gonna mute my microphone when I cough, but it's gonna be a lot. And uh, and then I discovered on. Um, I suppose yesterday that I had some unwanted house guests of my own because whoa 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 whoa, whoa. Uh, clarification I did not say unwanted <laughs> welcome joyfully welcome that I had some house guests who were unwanted because I discovered I was cleaning out the garage and I discovered a place uh, where uh, uh, rodentia uh, where little mice had uh, had um, chewed around the. Um, the 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 sort of entry place where the cable wires come into for the internet come into my garage, chewed a little hole and then come into my garage and then chewed a little place into the I have an adjoining garage chewed a little place into the wall between my garage and my uh, house and I I discovered this and in short discovered that I had some mice some unwanted mice guests in my house that I have now been set myself to eviscerating. I'm I'm sorry to hear that you have a mouse. I we had. Um, I do not have a mouse. I caught of... eight mice yesterday, Ed. I have many, many mice. I'm sorry. What you caught? How many? I know. I don't. I don't. I think they came in during the winter. I don't know, but I I had no. I had seen no evidence of them until yesterday, and then the dog um, barked at something in the living room and chased it across the room. And uh, although I didn't see it, I believe it was a mouse because I put I cleaned out the garage, put down some mouse traps, caught some mice. Uh, called an exterminator. It was uh, all of the things. I, I I do not like mice. I do not think I have. Uh, it, I well, Kate and I lived in a house that had mice a lot, quite some time ago. But 
I do not. And I, I hesitate to say this because if you have mice in your house, it almost feels like you're indicting yourself of some ritual impurity or something like that. But I think it's well, just... Well, it's like they, getting COVID, whether it's your yeah, fault or it's not. Yeah, your fault or the not. implied guilt. Right, of, you, exactly. know, you must have done something to deserve this. And, Who sinned, J.D.? You or your father? I, that you well, it was me, actually, because I put uh, in, the, in the fall time a bag of bird seed in the garage, but oh. I didn't put it in a Tupperware or anything like that. And so the, 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 there was a chewed hole in the bottom of the bag of birdseed and quite a mess. But it was behind some other things, and so I didn't see it. I can't so believe that. They, they like that sort of thing. Yeah. We had one mouse over the winter. And, I mean, I don't know how you're I, – I, I assume that Mrs. Flynn must just have ice water in her veins because we had one mouse. And I mean one mouse. One. Only one. In our house, if you over see the a winter. mouse, then you have many, many more. I, I read on the internet to make myself feel better. If you see one mouse, you maybe have as many as forty. No, I don't believe that to be true. Um, well, I saw one mouse. I laid traps. I took all of the precautions. I caught and killed one mouse, and all mouse signed that disappeared thereafter. So I'm satisfied. I had a I had a lone ranger, but even that one one mouse, my wife was yes deeply upset i she all but insisted we burn the house down and move and so if you've if you've managed to catch aid in a night i can only imagine that mrs flynn is either an extremely um calm woman or you no, are, we were up you to, are feeling a sense of urgency we were, yeah imagine. she has definitely lit a bit of a fire and we were up until one thirty just cleaning things that are irrelevant you know what i mean like that right. there oh, yeah. can't be yeah, any yeah. sort of crumb anywhere which is fine i mean it's a sort of spring cleaning that is fine i called an exterminator because i put down poison and traps and other things but i don't i don't want to mess around with this so i called an exterminator and i've decided it's time to get a cat and i feel like those things will be will resolve this problem for me i i'm against cats but i concede that if you are if you are hosting um numerous mice that a cat is probably the most effective uh way of getting rid of them I, i'm willing to concede that i I mean, I assume I—I I don't know how one acquires a cat because it's never occurred to me to try. But I mean, if children's films have taught me anything, it's that cats are given away for free in cardboard boxes on city. Corners. I've been looking is... for such a box. I've been looking for such a box. Just while I was out running errands today, I had my eye open for such a box, but I have not seen one yet. I. There must be a place that just gives cats away for free. I feel. Yeah, I just have to find it, and uh, and then. And then get a cat. Wait, isn't this the sort of thing that Facebook is for? Just like uh, a, there's a cat section, a cat give a cat. No, I feel like this is the sort of thing if you were to put on the Facebook, I need a cat for free immediately, no questions asked. I mean, people would then just give you cats, right? That's how these things work. I don't know. I'll try it and see if I get a cat. You know what you should do? Start a GoFundMe. <laughs> I should I, start I, a GoFundMe. But I that's, don't That's want, what the kids all do these want days when they want something. Like I don't they want, want an expensive to, cat. You know, they want to go to vacation to um, Bush Gardens or whatever. They just put a GoFundMe up and say, hey, I want to I, I want to go on a vacation. So could you pay for that? <laughs> yeah. Please? And everyone... Internet. Yeah, uh, agreed. But I no, I don't. I don't want to do that because I don't want to pay for a cat. I just want to get one, and I don't want to have an emotional attachment to the cat. I just want to put it to work. Like I just want to work in cat. That's also nice to my mm -hmm. children, or at least not vicious to them. At least not vicious to the children. Yeah. Well, I mean, presumably you could then have the the dog policing the cat. Yeah, and I just want to say, I just want to come back to it. I I because I feel this like, ends with you getting a horse. You know that, right? Like that's how the well. Song it's so funny that you say that because I was looking at the Humane Society website uh, yesterday of the of the uh, South Platte Valley, which is where I live, and uh, indeed, um, 
Uh-huh. You can adopt a horse from the Humane Society uh-huh. of the South Flat Valley for practically nothing. Now, these horses have problems, <laughs> real problems. Each one of them is like yeah, experienced rider only, does not like being ridden, can't be around children or dogs <laughs> or cars, these kinds of things. It's basically angry wild horses. These are damaged horses, but uh, – it, they're super cheap, like practically free. Like the the so called you know <laughs> homing fee or whatever is like for a horse one hundred dollars for a horse. You shouldn't be able to get a horse for a hundred dollars. Well, I mean, are these? I mean, I understand you're saying they're temperamentally problematic, but are they in are they in otherwise good physical condition? I believe so. And so, if you want, would they make good eating? I guess is what I'm getting to. See. I don't know that I would eat a horse if I didn't know its provenance. You know what I mean? Like, what if it was... Well, that's what I mean. I mean presumably, they come with papers. I, I don't think that they do come with... They papers. have to deworm them, at least. I would see if I had some evidence that they had been... And if I could have the meat inspected by a... Like, by a horse inspector... I, I was going to say you don't want to get the U. You don't want to get like the USDA no, or something pri- involved surely, in this. I think they probably surely there are private horse, horse inspectors who will just tell me if everything's Under okay. Like if it, yeah, like I slip him a twenty and he tells just me if it has spots on his liver or, or anything like that. Yeah, that's that's all I want. You know, and and again, I don't know what kind of question. If you're getting a horse for a hundred dollars, I'm sure that people know that you do not have good intentions for the damn thing. Right, like JD, I think there's like, isn't there a, isn't there a stock phrase about not looking gift horses, horses in the mouth? Right, exactly. So you can't look in the mouth while you're there. And then you know, if you tell them, oh well, I'm just, I'm going to take, I have a sanctuary, I have a prairie that it's going to live on, and uh, and I'm just going to feed it clover. I mean, though, I'm sure that if you've got a bunch of horses that you've got to get rid of, you're just going to write that down and move on to the next one, right? I mean, you're not going to. Uh, don't ask questions when you're trying to move angry horses. Yes, that's exactly right. You just corral that guy probably with a uh, some spur. I don't know. Well, I don't want to say some spurs. Cause what I think is funny is you're talking about getting a horse for 100 bucks, but I know that what's going to happen is the next time I come to Denver, I'm going to step outside into your backyard, and I'm going to find like a donkey tethered up there or something. <laughs> what do you, what, where did this come from? I don't know. We started off trying to get a cat, and somehow I ended up with a donkey. If, and it, If I were going to get a donkey from the Humane Society or anyone else, I would just walk up to it, and I would say the master has need of this, and then walk off with it. Like, you know? That's when I get a donkey, I do it right. Good. Fair enough. Um, you have to bring it back if you do use that. Do one, you right? think? I mean, I have no idea. Did the Lord, after the Lord rode the donkey into Jeru? It's in the gospel. The master has needed it. We brought back when he's done. Yeah, but was it? Like. Well, that's pretty crappy if they. Would, I mean, they've literally taken the Lord's name in vain. If they, <coughs> it's true. That's if a they very good bring point. It back. Yeah, that's a very good point. So. Yeah. I mean, it would be crap to be the disciple who, you know, is like, all right. Um. Matthias, take the donkey back. It's like, but it's like six miles away. Yeah, and I thought we were going to do the, you know, other stuff today. Yeah, I thought we were going to have dinner. And like, like, nope, you're, you're, you've got the donkey. You're on donkey duty. Yeah, Go exactly for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. all right. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, that having been said, what would you like to talk about this well, week? Well, I would Jay? like to start, if we could, Ed, um, actually with an interview that you conducted this week. Um, you interviewed Francis Cardinal Stafford, the emeritus prefect for the Apostolic Penitentiary and the emeritus prefect for the Congregation for the Laity. And uh, you spoke with him about the Psalter, praying the Liturgy of the Hours, and he also um, discussed with you a vision, a kind of vision for the renewal of the parish or the life of the parish that I found rather interesting, and I thought it might be interesting to hear a little bit about it um, from you. Oh, okay. 
I, I recognize that this is a shameless point to just get me to do some talking so you can cough. But my, nevertheless, I, I will, I will rise to the bed. hurts. I understand. I also, understand. I want to hear I about will, the thing. Sure you do. Um, no, but I did, in fact, have a, a long and lovely conversation with, with James Francis. Cardinal Stafford, I believe is his name. Um, and he was he was wonderful. I mean, he's one of the... I, I don't think he's the most senior American no, Cardinal. No, Maida. Cardinal Maida. The Maida. The Maida. Cardinal Maida is well there. known in canon law for a very sort of novel... If Cardinal Maida himself is a canon lawyer and has a very sort of novel reading of uh, certain elements of the uh, of, uh, of uh, Book 5 of the Code of Canon Law, wouldn't you say? I, I would say he's known for those views, yeah. Yes. Uh, but anyway, Cardinal Stafford is, uh, he's 89, he's hes seen a lot, and I'll be honest with you, it was one of the more interesting and surprising interviews I have conducted, because uh, he's giving a lecture next month on on the liturgy of the hours and the life of the parish, and this struck me as an unusual combination of yeah. topics to give a lecture on. You know, you don't, I mean, you know... Um, it's you know you you think of the liturgy of the hours and you think of communal prayer and you think of things like that as being not exclusively intended for but principally lived within the context of religious houses be they of religious orders or seminaries or you know whatever place where there is dedicated common life that sort of thing and so the idea of you know having this be something that was related to the the life of the parish I thought was very very interesting and so anyway we we were having a conversation and. It, it ended up being a far longer interview than I, I had expected because the Cardinal was very generous with his time. But also he just, um, he was extremely reflective and forthcoming. I, I, was, I was surprised. I mean, like I started off just asking him, you know, what do you think about, you know, why pick this topic? And he, he within two sentences, he was telling me about how he had was coming to understand and grapple with the moral question of the firebombing of Dresden when he was 13. And I was, I, um, it was, it was, it was wonderful because his discussion of prayer, particularly the liturgy of the hours, the Psalter, you know, the Psalms that the church takes as its sort of, you know, um, official prayer book, if you like, uh, his, his knowledge of it and engagement within a life of prayer really did begin <laughs> In childhood, and it has, and it defined, um, in many ways, how his his biography, how he grew up, how he came to discern a priestly vocation, how he came to live in uh, live his seminary years, how he came to live his priesthood, and I thought it was very very interesting. And his whole thesis is that what we lack in the church. From the 20th century, the legacy of the 20th century, which is, he argues, and I would agree with him, primarily a legacy of violence, of traumatic violence of the two world wars. And then, you know, thereafter, the looming threat of nuclear war and the Korean War and the Vietnam War and all these things um, that, the you know, the sort of predominant psychological effect of the 20th century has been one of trauma since um, since we had these these wars and threats of wars. And his thesis is that the church has retained hope in the face of this but not joy and that we need more joy and the way the church rediscovers joy is through prayer is through particularly prayer of praise what he calls the the canticum laudes the the canticle of praise that is what the church is called to give to god and he put forward 
a very interesting point, which is he said, you know, and he's had all of these interesting jobs. Um, he said, you know, and I asked him, was there a sort of a through line that he'd experienced? You know, was there something that he was drawing on? You know, was this a conclusion he'd reached from having a varied career where he worked in parishes? He was director of Catholic charities in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. He was a bishop in um, Tennessee and then in Denver and then in Rome and all the, these positions. And he said, yeah, the 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 weight of fear and of guilt is a real thing. But the answer to it is is the Trinity. And the only way that we can understand the Trinity in the church is through prayer and praise, is through the Psalter, is through this canticle of praise that the church is called to be. And that this is key to understanding um, the identity of the parish. That he said, you know, when I was a bishop, um, I would go and visit parishes, as bishops do. A diocesan bishop. And he's, yes. <clears throat> And he said part of it was, he'd always say, well, you know, be sure to bring along your, your parish mission statement. And they always would, and they'd come along. And <clears throat> the mission statement would always be in some way uh, practical and service-oriented, you know, serving the community and serving God. So, you know, and have, you know, some sort of mission statement that was fundamentally about um, active service, uh, a ministry of service of some kind. And, he's, and he, he trained in grad school as a social worker. Cardinal Stafford did. And he said, you know, as a social worker, I absolutely affirmed this. You know, I, I thought this was great when I was a diocesan bishop. You know, this is this showed a, you know, a dynamic parish that had a, a mind to be, you know, living the gospel. And that's all good. He said, I'll be honest with you, though, if I were visiting parishes now, I would be more interested in understanding the prayer life of the church, of the parish, that this is the key to the conversion of the parish to the the experience of the parish and its identity. Um, and he said that the theology of the parish is underdeveloped in the church. He called it the poor man of the church that, you know, Vatican II gives pages and pages and pages to talking about the universal church and the diocese and everything. But the parish doesn't really get that much of a look at. But this is the sort of practical epicenter of people's lived experience of the faith. And we need to talk more about it. And we need to talk more about how we pray as a parish. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the interview was really all about. And I, again, it was, it was an unexpectedly um, very reflective, very interesting, not just um, glimpse into the biography of Cardinal Stafford, because I really only knew him and of him from his work in Rome, but he, you know, he, he was an unexpectedly uh, forthcoming <laughs> interviewee in that sense. And, and a lot of what he says had to say about the idea of prayer in the parish is, not something I had considered and, and found very, very interesting. Well, you know, we have been talking uh, on this show at various times about the identity of the parish and especially the missionary identity of the parish um, and uh, and the way in which we want to ensure, for example, that everyone in the life of the parish feels obliged to engage in the mission of the parish and that the parish isn't a sort of work of the parish isn't delegated to a kind of solely to a kind of um, uh, um, um, professional, professional cast or something like that. Um, but all of that, all of the conversation that we have been having has really been about parish doing. And I think Cardinal Stafford's point in a certain way was to think about parish being and to and to think about parish being particularly in reference to divine intimacy, to think about the parish first and foremost um, in, in an expression of praise Um as a community of praise, uh, people of praise, if you will, um, as a community of praise, which I found, which I think is a very, you know, we, we, you and I tend to talk about the parish territorially and then uh, sort of apostolically. 
And um, and there's a way in which, of course, the apostolic orientation of the parish uh, flows from and is preceded by and ought to really be the the fruit of the parish's uh, m- mystical identity, which is where it sounds like he, he was or where he feels like the, a, a sort of thoughtful evaluation of the life of the parish really ought to begin. Well, yeah. I mean, that, that it's actually something he said. He said, this is what I think, that recapturing um, – uh, prayer and Trinitarian prayer is the basis of everything. And this this is something he actually says. It's, com- it's a completely different way of thinking about the parish, not as a group of people, not as a territory, or a mode of pastoral or sacramental delivery. It's rooted in all of those things too, of course, but primarily as a voice of prayer and praise. I, I, I it was again. It's you know we like you said we've talked a lot about this sort of thing, but this was a a, a new and challenging way of thinking about some of the stuff we've been talking about, and I really I enjoyed it. It was. It, it, I had expected an interesting conversation because Cardinal Stafford's an interesting cat, and I thought that'll be fun. But it was, um, I was, I was surprised. Yeah, I had, I, I, I got a lot more out of it than I had anticipated. And I think it brings. I'm gl- I'm grateful for it because I do think it brings an essential piece that um, was, in a certain way, missing um, from the way that we, from the way that you and I had been talking uh, about the life of the life of the parish, or at least um, hadn't been central to the way that you and I had been talking uh, about the life of the parish. But wouldn't you say, I mean, there's a kind of um, enrichment of the conversation that we have been having or the vision of the parish that we have been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. Um, That was a lot of uh, uh, unspoken air there. I'll probably cut that out, but... uh, what? No, I would like to talk, Ed, uh, as well about some big news that came out this week. Um, I'd like to talk about um, big news that came out from us this week that we reported this oh. week. Namely, you gave me a look like you weren't really sure what the big news would be. Well, I mean, there's such a choice, Shady. Yeah, namely, the Vatican's approval of the United States is uh, of the uh, of the program of priestly formation in the United States. The norms of the of the uh, of the U.S. Bishops Conference as regards. Um, the formation of priests and seminaries and the kind of an implementation to the Congregation for Clergy's Ratio Fundamentalis, which outlines sort of universal principles for priestly formation. I should like to talk about that, but before we do, um, and I suspect we're going to talk about that actually when we come back from the break, but before we go to that break, um, aren't I getting good at commercial breaks? You are. You are. Well, I've always said you were, your your vocation, your true vocation was talk radio. Oh, gosh. I... That that is you, and you're you're you have a real gift, a charisma, if you will, even for the backhanded compliment, and I'll take it. Well, wait, I, don't, I don't mean that it's a backhanded. Entirely, <laughs> you like talk radio. You listen to I talk like radio and listen to talk radio. I didn't know that about myself. I don't. I don't think I listen to talk. You radio. listen to NPR. Don't I don't pretend. consider that to be talk radio, though. I consider it to be the worst kind of talk radio. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> um, I before we go to commercial, I should like to talk. For a moment about a decision announced by Pope Francis uh, just today. Actually, we're recording this episode on Friday morning, and I'd like to talk about a decision announced by Pope Francis, the Roman Pontiff, the Bishop of Rome, just this morning about uh, something which we have also been discussing on this show, namely um, whether or not he would meet with Patriarch Kirill, I think the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church. I think we talked about this not too long ago, about the prospect of the Pope meeting with the Russian Orthodox Patriarch in Jerusalem and how this has been kind of in a, not kind of, how this has been an affront um, to uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholics who feel that Kirill is sanctioning a war against them 
And um, well, I don't know that they feel that he he is who, who yeah who have, who lament that Kirill is sanctioning a war against them, and uh, and um, and so there had been this tension between there, and there has been I think frustration among Ukrainian Catholics on the whole. We've seen it expressed in a few ways about the way the Holy See is talking about the war that they haven't named Russia explicitly as the aggressor that the Holy See was going to involve sort of Russian and Ukrainian people at the. Colosseum Stations of the Cross on Good Friday, talking sort of together about peace and reconciliation while the war continues to be waged in their country, um, and that the Pope has continued to make ecumenical overtures toward Patriarch Kiro. But it sounds like those ecumenical overtures are coming to a um, stop for the moment. Would you say that that's so? I, I don't know that the overtures are coming to a complete stop, but yes, the plans for a June meeting in Jerusalem appear to be definitely off. And it seems that Cardinal Perelin and the rest of the Secretary of State's mandarins uh, I've just realized it's deeply funny to refer to. I, I'm used to referring to sort of um, civil service, particularly foreign office civil servants of a senior rank as mandarins, because it's typical currency in the British civil servants to just refer to them as mandarins. But now I realize it's deeply we don't, funny and perhaps a double we, meaning to refer to them as mandarins. I don't think in the we state use that department. phrase in America very often unless we're referring to oranges, but. For you, it is a phrase which means civil servant. Because you're English, obviously, and so for you, that means civil servant. Right, but it's obviously drawn from I understand. The, the role of mandarins in the Chinese imperial court. And, and, and your own there's, colonial there's history. between the diplomatic functions of the Holy See and mm-hmm. the People's Republic of China. So, Anyway, um, yes, it seems that the, the advice that Pope Francis received from the Secretary of State was that uh, such a meeting could be open to misinterpretation and uh, could be, you know, could cause a bit of um, admiratio mm-hmm. uh, in, amongst the faithful, particularly in Ukraine. It could be, uh, you know, it could be open to to mixed signals, be received as uh, giving off mixed signals by the international community. With um, and so this thing is off. And I mean, I have to say, I've, I was always, and I have been on this show since. Um, we started talking about this, which actually I think was before the invasion of Ukraine actually began. I've always been slightly bullish on the prospect that Pope Francis would keep trying to meet with Kirill even uh, after the invasion started because he's that kind of guy. He likes a meeting. He likes going to the peripheries. He likes going to the margins. He likes being the one who, uh, you know, it, it is there where no one else is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. from a, from his sort of, you know, philosophical pastoral standpoint i get why he likes to do that and it makes sense uh, in this case i think it it was open and in fact i wrote that it was open to all of these misinterpretations and it presented a bit of a gamble for the pope and he basically had very little to potentially gain from such a meeting and Kirill had everything to gain and the pope actually had quite a lot to lose in terms of international credibility and all of this so i don't think this is the end of um francis Kirill or at least Vatican-Moscow contact. I think there will be further exchanges and sort of exploratory, you know, uh, back-channel overtures exchanged. Mm. Because, you know, that's that's why the Holy See, for example, does not come right out and say Vladimir Putin is a bloodthirsty dictating warmonger and Kirill is running a puppet Caesar or papist uh, church that is blaspheming against Correct. the very notion of Christ by supporting uh, a brutal invasion and the slaughter of innocent civilians. The reason that the Holy See doesn't do that is because its traditional diplomatic stance is to not be um, pointing fingers uh, in the international 
realm, that the idea is that the Holy See is able to continue to dialogue with all sides, even if there is a clear moral right and wrong in a conflict. And so, I mean, you know, the idea that people have been criticizing the Holy See for not making a more stern and explicit in terms denunciation of, of Putin and, and Russia, I mean, I, to, a, to a degree, I understand it. I think it's misinformed, um, but I understand it, but it's also nothing new. I mean, this is every time there is a, a global conflict of any kind of note, there's there are people who say, well, the Holy See, Holy See should be, you know, explicitly taking sides in this well there's frustration i think between the the um the sort of ostpolitik approach of the of the holy see on some of these things which says well we need to ensure i mean this is we've been talking about china forever but with the holy see, look the tension for the holy see is between its obligation to be prophetic and its obligation to ensure the rights of catholics and other religious believers but most especially christians and, and most especially catholics around the world and and it's perceived it's perceived sense that there's a tension between those things and so um you know we who do not have to make judgments about these things often think it would be so much better if uh, the holy see were just more explicitly prophetic on um issues of global geopolitics and the holy see often sort of says in its own defense yeah but we have to be pragmatic because we're trying to do what we can to to sort of um, uh, impede the the real persecution that Christians might face. And hold on one sec. And this is one of those cases where, for I think a lot of Ukrainian Catholics, the sense that the Holy See is sort of um, playing at politics instead of just speaking what seems to them to be immediate, real, tangible um, danger of the worst kind has been frustrating. Um, yeah, yeah, and as we've talked about that kind of frustration for people in other parts of the world as well, when they feel like the Holy See isn't calling out their uh, their own regime. But do you think? I mean, do you think? Do you think that for the Secretary of State, it's a sort of reflexive desire, not, diplomats' desire not to make enemies that keeps them from, say, calling out Russia more concretely, or do you think it's? Um, a sense that doing so could cause harm to Christians within Russia or in other parts of the sort of Russia's sphere. I don't. I, you you mentioned um, China, and I don't know that the Secretary of State's mode of thinking or motivations are the same in in the Russia Ukraine uh, invasion versus the sort of ongoing human rights abuses in China. Okay. And and I tell you for why I I think that the Secretary of State and the the Apostolic See in general has a long and it is it is reflexive at this point but I think it does have a long sort of um, uh, just basic premise of its international policy which is it doesn't take sides in in wars between nations now there is an unjust invasion of one nation of another in the case of Russia and Ukraine. And the, I suppose, perceived or theorized benefit of not taking explicit sides in that conflict is on one level, although this is not exactly on the table in this conflict, but it's part of the general premise, I think, is that it doesn't make the the Holy See a, a belligerent nation in this. And so you don't have, even when the country of Italy is under occupation, for example, you don't have the Holy See and Vatican City under occupation necessarily, um, because it isn't considered to be a belligerent nation. It's considered to be a neutral one. So there's that. Um, I think there's also something to the possibility that um, the Pope 
and the Holy See can be an emissary of peace at some point in a conflict, even a grotesquely unjust one, if it still has not committed itself to appearing to be on one side of the conflict in an overt and um, explicit way. So if there comes a point where they need someone to knock on Putin's door and offer him terms of peace or surrender for him or something, um, and they need someone who can go and hold himself as an honest broker, I think the Holy See likes to be in the position where it can serve that function if, if it comes to it. Those are all prudential judgments. I don't know that I agree with them all or necessarily think that that's the best way, but I think that's that's a fair representation of of the sort of real politic of of why they do that. But whereas China, I think there's actually no excuse. The idea that you know we're trying to the Holy See is trying to minimize or limit the the possible persecution of Catholics on the ground. I mean, there are bishops who are you know disappeared from their homes at night. I I, I don't think it's reasonable to you know Jimmy Lai is in prison. You know, and he's a lay Catholic, and you know, I, I, yeah, I just don't think it's possible to to claim that anything is um, being gained from from being nice to China, or at least not being mean to the public. And also, I just I think there is also, uh, in terms of the sort of international diplomatic place on the board that the Holy See wants to occupy, there is a difference between not wanting to be seen to side with one or other um, group of nations in an armed conflict versus condemning systematic genocide by a country within its own borders that to look at the people's Republic of China and say, well, yeah, they're rounding up more than a million Uyghurs and sticking them in concentration camps and forcibly sterilizing them. And, you know, this is, it's a different, it's a different thing. Um, it's not to say that, you know, well, Russia I isn't morally culpable and horrible of everything they're doing with the armed invasion. It's not to say that there aren't war crimes being committed. And I mean, there are, right? I mean, those, those are no less. There atrocious. certainly are. I'm just saying there isn't even the fog of war to peer through in China. It is, you know, it's mechanized. Well, I... So, I, I, I say all that to not to say no, that I, I mean, think, I think that from the should or, do, should or shouldn't do one thing or that. I, just, I, I say that to say I think they are separate. Um, separate evaluations are being made by the Secretary of State in both cases, even if they're coming to similar conclusions or appear to be. Well, I don't know, but we will be uh, right back after a word from our sponsor. This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. Some of you may know that the University of Dallas has recently launched a free video series called The Quest, which you can watch at the link in the show notes or at udallas.edu slash pillar. The Quest is a five-episode documentary series about discovering your purpose and living it with courage. Begin your quest, guys, at udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. Welcome back to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. Ed and I are about to talk about some big changes that are coming to seminary formation at a seminary near you. Uh, the bishops of the United States were notified this week that the program of priestly formation, which is a program for priestly formation, 
developed by the OCCB as a, um, as a sort of national set of standards and outline of the way in which uh, seminaries should operate in the United States um, has been approved by the Holy See and so will now soon begin to be implemented. And the new PPF, the sixth edition of the PPF, which is, again, kind of a normative policy for seminaries in the United States, makes some big changes, not just like um, – not just to particular, you know, courses or curricula or something like that, but essentially tries to reframe the whole of uh, of priestly formation in a new paradigm or a new way of thinking about it. Would wouldn't you say? I think so. I um, it, it is. I think it is a bigger change than a lot of people were. Ex- or it contains bigger changes, plural, than a lot of people were expecting to see. And I think it is, I mean, I think the nicest thing I can say about the PPF, sixth edition of the PPF, we should say, is that I think it is a a pretty good capture, reflection, dare I say, enculturation of the Ratio Fundamentalis that the congregation put out in 2016. I mean, I think this does a good job of saying in 2016, the Vatican said, we've been thinking for a long time about a new update a new articulation of what we think priestly formation should look like and the ratio was was great when it came out and a lot of it but everyone kind of said at the time be interesting to see how this is actually brought to bear in in different parts of the world and you know we've had this protracted back and forth between the usccb and the congregation over the last couple of years that you know the usccb kept getting extensions to the fifth edition while they were working on a new version of the PPF, the extension actually ran out. So they've been operating without a PPF, at least formally uh, for more than a year now. And we had this back and forth about, they wanted to soften some of the language and some of the concepts in the ratio in their version of the PPF. And, and I think what we've ended up with is actually a very, um, uh, it contains all of the powerful changes that, that Rome were looking for, but I think it also contains some, some very elegant, squarings of circles where the U.S. bishops had concerns and they were particularly concrete concerns that, you know, I, I think they weren't uh, they weren't crying wolf when they said, look, this is going to be a particular practical challenge for us. It's going to be a huge and I think set they of challenges. Work- I'm sorry? It's going to be a huge set of challenges. It is going to be. Well, I mean, they are. Then it should be. I mean, this shouldn't be easy. If you're going to have a complete revisiting of the ethos and practice of priestly formation, it shouldn't be easy to put into place. But I mean, they had when they were pushing back and having this sort of, well, what about this? And Rome saying, no, that's not what we said. Um, And having that go back and forth over and over again. You know, the the USCCB wasn't just being obstructionist and saying, well, let us ignore the parts we want to avoid. They were saying we have practical concerns about some of these things. Mm -hmm. And they've come up with, I think, a very a very elegant solution to those, to those things. I'm, I think this is good work. I think everyone on both sides of the ocean who worked on this should, should justifiably feel proud. I, you know, this is, this is a good, this is good work. So let's talk about, let's talk about what the changes are that. Okay. Are you going to talk about them or are you continuing to, are you going to, are you feeling ticklish in the throat? I don't want to talk over you. I'm conscious. I'm doing a lot of the talking as you predicted on this episode. Well, actually it's funny. You predicted that. Um, but I think you just are good. You're doing well. I mean, you're doing well, and I don't want it far be it for me to. You're doing well. So let's just talk about. I mean, because the changes are not. The changes are not just 
um, you know, we've talked about, you and I have talked about the fact that there's a new sort of beginning stage of priestly formation called the propodeutic year where guys spend a year kind of in prayer, learning how to pray and, 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 and um, it's also growing great. I mean, in communion you know, with the church. Um, so there's this that, new stage. Well, I was going to say another key part of this idea of a propodeutic stage or, or period, and we've talked to bishops who've already brought this in in their dioceses and in their seminaries. We've talked to people in Denver and um, San Francisco. Another place that has it is Mundelein. I can't remember if Mundelein has been in our coverage, but I think Mundelein has a propodeutic year. I think so. I think they have. Anyway, but yeah, so Chicago, Denver, San Francisco, these are all places that have them and have the propodeutic phase. And some of the people we talked to, the four majors, have said it's it, it's spiritual formation it's as you say bring you know better integrating um the candidate into you know, sort of the, the life and mind of the church but also there's a there's also a degree of remedial human formation it was archbishop corleone that's who I, that's who we talked to about this and was saying um that you know the the times are changing and the sort of baseline level of personal maturity or independence that you could expect of uh, a young man at a given age 40 years ago is materially different to what you would expect now Mm -hmm. that, you know, we didn't have things 20 years ago, even like social media, um, you know, technology, smartphones, things like that. Things that require, um, in many cases, breaking with, you know, uh, breaking with entirely for a period of time so that you can remake a healthy relationship with them thereafter. And that's all part of this propedeutic period, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's right. So this propod- we've talked about the fact that this propodeutic period is a period not only of prayer, but also human formation. I know when I worked for the Archdiocese of Denver, I'd always see what we call the SY guys, the spirituality year guys. I'd always see them kind of pushing a broom around the seminary or weeding things or stuff like that. And I believe they undergo a technology fast where they have to turn in their phones and that kind of stuff. So there, it's, there's this period of not, not only learning how to pray, but also just this human formation of a, a kind of effectively a novitiate for seminarians. And so uh, we've talked about that. And then and the, the other big sort of change, if you look at, if you look at it from a practical point of view is that the the end of seminary formation includes something called the vocational synthesis stage, where deacons, um, wherein the new PPF recommends that guys finish their studies before they are ordained deacons, and um, and uh, and then after they're ordained deacons, spend at least six months living in a parish um, in which the uh, the pastor is the primary formator, in which they're sort of growing in the habits of pastoral ministry and growing in the experience of pastoral ministry so that by the time they're ordained a priest, they have been sort of in some practical pastoral ministry kind of experiences and contexts and situations. And uh, and I have heard from a lot of guys um, just who work in seminary formation, guys who think really well of that, guys who think it represents lots of challenges, guys who think those ideas are very good, guys who are a little more skeptical. I want to talk about that. But before I do, I want us to step back because, Ed, those practical changes don't exist in a vacuum. They exist within the framework of a different kind of way of thinking and talking about priestly formation more broadly, right? This notion of kind of these stages, propodeutic, um, uh, discipleship stage, uh, uh, there's one after that. I can't remember what it's called now. But but th- this notion of the, these stages effectively exist as a sort of growing in Christian discipleship and then growing in the spirituality and identity of a priest more than just kind of philosophy, theology, diaconate year. Um, yeah. It, it's, it, the idea is that it's – and I like this. And it's taken from the 2016 Ratio is that a seminary should be forming missionary disciples. That that's you know um, and first that, in a broad language. general way, and then 
priestly missionary. So there's a kind of a, a, yeah. a focusing. Learn how to pray and live like a Christian. Have a better sense of sort of mission and pastoral identity and then a really clear um, what is the spirituality and identity of a priest. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I like this narrowing. And I mean, I also like, um, and I think you're right. You've, I, you've, you've alluded to it just now, but uh, you've, when we were talking earlier this week, you were pretty clear. And I think you're right that the biggest reform in, in this PPF is, is this, um, vocational is the synthesis thing. Yeah. Is that deacons now will need to finish their studies before diaconal ordination, whereas now it's mostly customary that, you know, you get ordained deacon and then you finish your last year. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be a big change, but also this living, it, it's basically a return to what used to be very common in the church at different times in its history, which is basically a time of, um, pastoral apprenticeship yeah effectively yeah and i think that's great i think that's really going i mean it is going to be um a big deal to implement i think it will be a little traumatic in some places but i think when it you know when it does shake out and it becomes sort of part of the norm i think that will be immensely beneficial i think that it is important for seminarians for people being formed for the ministerial priesthood that they have a sense of what that ministerial priesthood looks like that it isn't just um something that they experience you know in sort of weekend placements from time to time or hear about order but to have a, a period of months where they're living it i think is is very helpful it's very good also i think it will help um better establish and understand the the ministry of the diaconate to have a time where the diaconate is practically lived and that, you know, they aren't just sort of floating as, you know, diaconate is basically, you know, you're, you're a senior approaching graduation basically is what it's like, you know, to actually have a time where they're living the, the diaconal ministries, I think would be good. It will be interesting to see what, um, what sort of role they begin to assume in parishes when they, when they arrive for this you know period of, six months to a year or whatever will be in different places but i think it'll be very interesting i'm i'm looking forward to it yeah um but i don't want to discount i mean there are the there are criticisms that i've heard and and i mean i don't want to just sort of cheerlead for the ppf without reflecting some of the concerns so um studies will have to change in seminary to adapt for the Mm -hmm. idea that the guy's going to come out you know uh, is supposed to be done with his studies before he's a deacon and then the bishop of the place is going to have to figure out places to send deacons for their diaconal uh, vocational synthesis stage of formation. And then I've heard a lot of guys say, yeah, but that means that ultimately the pastor, if he has a bad placement there, the pastor is going to have a lot of sway on whether or not he gets ordained. I actually don't think that's the case. I mean, I I, I understand what's being said there, but I'm I, I in the first place, the guy will be ordained a deacon before the vocational synthesis stage. And it's pretty, it's not... We we can both think of cases, we can both name cases, but it's relatively unusual that a person would be ordained a deacon and then would not be ord- uh, advanced a priesthood. I mean, that's relatively... There is, in fact, a legal presumption that he be allowed yeah. to advance unless there's a obvious it, and concrete problem. Right. Now, the the concern that people are raising, though, is to say, well, if, the, if he has a personality conflict with the pastor and the pastor takes that to the bishop and it becomes an issue, it just gives this guy a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of sway. The PPF actually says that the vocational synthesis stage isn't supposed to be a time of assessing the guy's suitability for orders, only right. sort of preparation and integration. But, you know, that's, as, that's worth what it says. It, it is true that the pastor who gets this 
job of sort of principal formator of a deacon in the vocational synthesis stage is going to have a lot of sway. Um, not only on what... Oh, and there will be dioceses, I'm sure, where the priests who are made this, it will be, you know, um, Father Feltbanner is going to make sure that the the young guy doesn't have too sharp a haircut right. and, you know, doesn't doesn't like, you know, doesn't show any signs of liking Latin or anything right, like exactly. that. I'm sure there will be that. And, and, and so it's set up for, you know, I mean, it's... I can under at a seminary there are many formators and so there are many voices speaking into what a seminary needs, what a deacon needs, how to, how to form him well. When a pastor is the primary formator, it will be incumbent on bishops, I think, to be really thoughtful about who they're picking and how they understand their role. And I hope there will be um, good uh, resources not only for sort of screening them because not everyone who's a good pastor will be a good vocational synthesis stage pastor, as it were. And so I think there have to be good resources for that. And then clarity clarity with the bishop about what the guy's, not just training, because, you know, training is what it is, but but clarity about what the guy's responsibility is towards that seminarian and what the seminarian has a right to expect and these kinds of things. I, I do think that there is this is rife for the possibility of personality conflicts, which could be very difficult. And also it's very interesting because the guy's, <clears throat> presumably are going to be getting most of their practical liturgical training from Father Pastor in the vocational synthesis stage rather than in the seminary. And um, that could mean a lot of things, but it is different, and um, the difference could be good or could be bad. But I think there has to be some attention to who who is doing this job, in, in, in part to ensure that um, – the deacon isn't sort of being trained in the liturgy according to Father Pastor, but the liturgy according to the church. So I can see why there are some concerns there. There's also, like for places like the North American College, where guys not only come, you know, are there in studies for their diaconal year, but often for their first year in priesthood to finish up a license, how this is going to work, this vocational synthesis stage, I, I don't know. And I, I suspect that. I presume they'll just, you know, apprentice them off to different dicasters of the Roman Curia. They can't. You can't. You can't like I live in Denver. There's a seminary here in Denver called St. John Vianney Theological Seminary, which is joke about knackers being (laughs) inevitably destined for senior administrative service. Perhaps they will, but you know we have guys from all over here at John Vianney Seminary, and they can't do their vocational synthesis stage here. They're supposed to do it in their own diocese, or you have a theological college, which is like a seminary in your diocese, and um, guys can't just be. Guys from TC can't just be parceled off to the parishes of the Archdiocese of Washington. They're supposed to go home for this thing. And so the pastor, the bishop has to figure that out. But also the seminaries where guys stay on, if you go to the NAC, you, you, you know, you have more time. If you were doing your studies for some reason, well, I guess this would be kind of rare. But I don't know. Are there guys who are doing formation at TC, but instead of studying at CUA are studying at um, the Dominican house and then continue studying for their first year of priesthood. I mean, that would that would potentially be a challenge. So there are a lot of things that I think have to be kind of ironed out here with this vocational synthesis stage. And then the thing is supposed to well, last for six months. We usually have a year now between diaconate and priesthood, but uh, with this thing lasting six months and the guys having already finished their studies, uh, does that mean that bishops are going to, you know, that a guy will be ordained a deacon in December and then a priest in May or... Uh, rather a priest in June or that the guy will be ordained a deacon in June and then a priest in December. I mean, it's just, it has the potential to sort of throw off the ordinary pattern of things. So I think there's a lot of stuff to be kind of ironed out about how this will work. I I understand the idea that it's a good idea, but I do think there are a lot of open questions about it. Well, not just practically, but about this relationship. Any plan can be maliciously implemented or or implemented with a, (coughs) with a, 
poor level of thought to create personality conflicts and to do something that it says on the tin it's not supposed to do, which is provide an extra form of assessment for this. You know, yes. Can it be abused and misapplied? Of course it can. That doesn't, that doesn't to my mind, uh, affect the quality of the thing itself to say, well, you, you know, yeah, to say, well, you might, you know, you could conceivably beat your child with this fire poker, so I'm not going to consider how useful a fire poker it is. No, but, you know, if you're going to have a fire poker at home, you have to think about what you're going to do with it. I mean, you'll find Okay, well, here's an idea. Here's an idea. What if the bishop just said, I'm going to make the six-month pastoral synthesis phase. Um, I'm going to send each seminary to effectively where I intend to send them for the first pastoral assignment once they're made a priest. That could be. That could work. That that stops it turning into a gatekeeper function for, you know, whoever the preferred priests anointed by the bishop are. And it gives the um, the deacon an actual grounding in what his ministry is going to look like, what that community is going to It's a soft introduction to that community. It's a get-to-know-you time with the pastor. And if there is a gigantic conflict in that six months, then it can be flagged immediately, not as a, well, this person's unsuitable for... Um, priestly ministry because this he didn't get along with his priest but it's like well so don't stick him there for a five-year hitch in his first assignment i guess in a certain yeah. way what also is cool about that is then this parish community his ordination becomes much more grounded, grounded in, in ecclesial reality knew him right? as a deacon and might do something crazy like want to turn up to his priestly ordination and talk to yeah because ordinations now it's like hey these young people who we didn't especially know are coming back to the diocese and they're going to be ordained, and maybe people who knew him in high school or whatever come to the ordination or went to college with them. But for a parish community to be able to really celebrate, like, experience the ordination of this is our guy, and we saw him as a deacon, and now we see him as a young priest, and we're kind of connected to him, there probably is something to that that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think it would be fun. It, it, I mean, when I read it, that seemed to me to be the obvious form of implementation uh-huh. is – you know, where do you send these guys for six months? You send them to the parish you're planning and sending them for the first assignment. You see how that works out. Everybody gets to get to know you. It has it grounds the the final phase of formation in a community, which let's be honest, this is something that's often very lacking. I find in um, when I've been to ordination uh, liturgies is you know there's supposed to be a sense that the candidate is being advanced by a community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you yeah. know that's actually part of. The liturgy is that you know who's proposing this person for ordination it's the rector who tends to do it in the formators but i mean traditionally it's supposed to be the community right. that this this guy is from yeah and you know to be able to have a, a sort of mechanism for the rediscovery of that you know even for the sort of period of six months or the last year before priestly ordination i think that'd be phenomenally cool well and especially in the case like a lot of young people who are seminarians now um who uh, uh, uh a lot of young people who are seminarians now, um, like let's say they didn't really grow up practicing the faith, but they kind of had a conversion at the Newman Center or something like that, and then they became seminarians. Even the com- their sort of childhood parish, their hometown parish, may not be especially connected to them in any meaningful way. Right, or might not know them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So. Well, I'm glad I could fix that problem. <laughs> well, it's going to be what it's interesting. It's going to be... Um, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot, uh, it, it, the implementation is going to be a lot, no matter what. Seminaries will have a lot to do. Bishops will have a lot to do. And I noticed one thing really interesting is there was no vocatio in the promulgation of the PPF. It, is it law? Uh, I don't, gosh, that's a good question. It is. A, I don't think it is. I think it's an instruction. I think the ratio is the law. Okay. So let's say it's an instruction. 
I guess that's a because what does it do? It clarifies, clarifies the law, and it, but no, it particularizes the law. In, in, it's an instruction like Dignitas Canubi is a law. Was there a vacatio when Dignitas Canubi was promulgated? A vacatio, by the way, is a period between when the law is promulgated and when it takes effect. I will this check that. Used to be the case. And these days, a lot of laws are promulgated in the church without a vacatio legis, so that they take effect as soon as they're promulgated. But tradi- historically and customarily, that's not the case. There's a period of time between when the law is promulgated and when it takes effect that gives the, those who are responsible for carrying out the law the opportunity to like prepare for its implementation. And this, whether... The, whether the PPF is a law or an instruction clarifying the law is a good question. Um, I, my sense is that the PPF is effectively an instruction at a legal base, uh, at a legal level. That the ratio fundamentalis is is the law, and that the PPF is a thing. But I'm um, I am going through uh, I'm going through the I'm going through dignitas Canubi, which is an instruction to see if it has a vacatio. Uh, let's have a looky here. Just uh, as the following norms are therefore to be observed, I'm going to go right to the back to make sure that I'm not missing one at the end of the document. But. Oh, here we go. Given it Rome. Uh, approved by the pontiff on the 8th of November 2004 pertains immediately from the day of its publication well there you have it there you have it so 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 it's if it's an instruction so it's interesting it, because it it's an instruction which does not have a vocatio but it Will take time more than a year for all of the ele- all of its elements to sort of fall into place. So it uh, wouldn't this... surprise me if you got a sort of generational handover. Yeah, it'll and be said, this like, transition anybody period. Who's, anybody who's already started the theological cycle is going to continue on the old way, and that anyone who's starting it from next September or whatever will finish under the norms. Yeah, probably something like that—a kind of gradualism of that that kind of way. yeah. Oh, that's right. That would make sense to me anyway. Yeah. Well, I think watching the implementation of it is going to be really interesting in the way that that uh, seminaries build build probably years. You know, one thing that's sort of interesting is whether or not this will mean this will hasten the closure of some seminaries. You know, that we have talked before and in our yeah. coverage raised the question of a lot of people I think are asking right now, do we have are there too many seminaries in the United States? And um we have seen in some data that I think we've published um uh a gradual reduction in the number of college seminarians in the United States. So I think a relatively consistent number of seminarians, but a reduction in the number of college seminarians. And so it's entirely possible that college seminaries, you know, people, that seminaries might close their college seminaries or that college seminaries might close at a greater rate or something like that. But um, um, but uh, I do wonder if the expectation of developing a propedeutic program, an initial preliminary program of human spiritual formation might sort of hasten that closure to some extent for some places. It's very possible. Um, I, I mean, the closure of any seminary would be a tragedy, but you know, this is, I, we are, and we've talked about this in relation to a bunch of different stuff, whether it's the sort of organization of the diocese, the parochial footprint of particular churches, and this is just another way in which you know we we are dealing with a time of institutional reinvention, 
in the church in this country, and that's going to continue apace. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's you know that's that's one of the things is that this this is part of the um, uh, part of that institutional reinvention in that it is going to require a real shift and adaptation of the institutions of seminaries themselves, a real revision of the way that they're doing things in deference to a reality about who seminarians are and what their needs are, what the church's needs are, what sort of being prepared for a clergy who are um, the, 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 the PPF seems to be describing a clergy who live in a missionary era instead of um, a sort of maintenance era of the church and seems to be envisioning a very different clerical reality than the ones that have been previously envisioned in this country. And so there is some institutional sacrifice that comes along with that because I think the PPF, the PPF-6, is recognizing that the church, the mission, nature, identity of the church, I, I can't hear that at all, by the way, the mission, nature, identity of the church in the United States is just changing dramatically. It is. I mean, you say institutional sacrifice. I don't think it's a sacrifice. I think that that which is going to go is going anyway. Mm. It's a question of whether the change is managed in a in an aware, directed fashion and towards um, towards a different and new reality and end instead of it just sort of falling apart around us. Um, I, I don't think that I don't. It's not my. It is not my impression on, admittedly, on first reading of the PPF that it's saying, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to make some changes and make some sacrifices because we've got a different idea. I think what this really is, is this is a document that's looking to, to a changed and changing world and to a changed and changing clerical reality. And, you know, it's not a question of you're going to have to make some changes. It's the changes are happening. This is how we're going to adapt. And I think that is, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. Cool. Well, Ed, as ever, it has been a pleasure to... Uh... Well, no, J.D., I thought we might play a game before we go. Well, I have only a few minutes, but if it's a short one. Well, it's 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 less a game. I mean, I suppose you could call it a game. It will, be, it will <laughs> probably know. be fun for me. <coughs> I imagine it will be fun for me. I, I don't know how much fun it will be for you. It's more sort of trivia quiz, I think, would oh, be a, no, a fair Oh, no, but I don't know anything about anything. No, that's not true. You're you're a very literate man. Oh no! People know this about you, and you know they they often say this about you. What do and they you say? Often say it about yourself. No, I don't so often I think... say it about my head. Gosh, <laughs> th- that was that may have crossed the line. <laughs> oh, don't be so precious. It was just a bit of fun. all right. Um, what is it? It that is, you want as know? you are aware, the octave of Easter, and I, I like. The eight days of Easter. I think it is wonderful. And eight is a nice round number. So I thought we might have a, a, a brief game of trivia on things that come in eights. Okay. Okay. Well, so there, I mean, you get lots of things that are frequently said to be or claimed to be the eighth wonder of the world, so-called. But I wonder how many of the seven actual eight wonders of the ancient world you're, you're able to name for me. How many of the seven wonders of the ancient world I can name for you? Yeah. Okay. The pyramids at Giza, one. Correct. The hanging gardens at Babylon, two. Absolutely. I don't exactly know what it is, but the Colossus at Rhodes. Yes. Is there an Egyptian lighthouse? Uh, there, there is a lighthouse. Yes, I mean Egyptian words like Egyptian are a bit. I mean it's Alexandria. I, I don't know. The, I, I, <laughs> Do you, it, is there a lighthouse Egypt. in Egypt? Yes. 
Okay. Some kind of a Zeus statue. Yes, yes. How am I doing? Statue of Zeus in Olympia. Well done. How am I doing? You're doing great. You got five so far. That is where I come to an end. Okay. Well, the, you did very well. I mean, there's also the mausoleum at Holocarnassus and the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. Now, let me ask you this. Yeah. Having gone to a very fine um, English boarding school, I presume that you knew all of those, that, that at some point some a crusty schoolmaster like sort of wrapped the board with a long stick and shouted those things at you boys and you scribbled them down in your notebooks and committed them to memory as you sort of like you had to march around in the morning shouting the statue of zeus the temple of artemis i mean did you know them all already i i, I was aware of the seven wonders of the ancient world i i don't remember mr wilson sort of wrapping the board and drilling them into us militarily i was mr I mean, wilson an Anglican cleric waiting for a pierce no, Mr. Wilson was not, but he did he did attempt to teach me Latin in in primary school. Um, and yeah, I mean, as most good Latin primary school classes should be, it was primarily a discussion of the ancient world, things that were cool, and Roman soldiery. And based upon my, stuff. based upon just a very little bit of reading about the English boarding school system, like what was Mr. Wilson's big secret? He was now, Mr. Wilson was an interesting character. Yes, in I that know. He, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how yet, but I have no doubt. <laughs> Mr. Wilson, no, I'm not going to. You know what? I don't think I'm going to take this bait. I feel like I, Mr. on the Wilson, off chance that... Was he, did he drink too much, tibble a little bit? Was he have a snuff problem, gambling? <laughs> no, we. <laughs> I, think he may well have done, I don't know. I don't know. We used to actually the best teacher for sort of idiosyncrasies was our history teacher, Mr. Saxton. He was he was great fun. His his office was at right angles on the quad of the building, the courtyard of the building, to um, the classroom that he taught in. So you could actually see across the corner into his office from the classroom, and he would disappear to do quote unquote photocopying from time to time during class, and we'd see oh, him no. bolt out I, of oh, the room no. and around the corner into his office and furiously light his pipe, and you know. Just basically get himself a nice, good nicotine hit in the middle of a long class and then pick up a big stack of pre-Xeroxed class notes and then come back and hand them Why out. Why didn't he just smoke in class? Uh, you know, we had one teacher who accidentally lit up um, absentmindedly during a test in the classroom. And, that and wasn't permitted then? We had a teacher. I had a teacher in Canada Law School who smoked out the window. Did you, did you have a teacher who smoked out the window? No, to the best of my knowledge, none of the teachers in Canon Law School smoked when I was there. Really? I guess they'd, I guess they'd quit by then. Father John Beale, a lion of Canon Law, really, smoked Marlboro Reds he did, like a chimney um, but he until he had, had a heart attack. He had given it up by the time yeah, I, I arrived. I, his, his previous ability to, to take down cowboy killers uh, were, was legendary. Yeah. I know. Mm -hmm. But no, he, he had given up by the time I was there. With his with his known and fabled will of iron. Well, there you have it. Okay, okay. second thing oh, to come at JD. Yeah, you um, you are well known for your biblical literacy. I think we can agree on that. That you you read the sacred scriptures, you take them to heart, you treasure and ponder the words of sacred ignorance scripture. Of in scripture your heart. is ignorance of Christ, my friend. Good. Well, there were, as I'm sure you are aware, eight people in the Ark of Noah. I was wondering how many of those eight people you could name. Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, mm -hmm. Noah's wife, Ham's wife, Shem's mm -hmm. wife, and the wife of Japheth. Uh, yes. Can you name any of those wives? Oh, 
a lot of times in the Bible they don't do that. Uh, name the wife. Uh, uh, you are entirely correct. This was a trick question. Uh, Noah and his three sons are named, and everyone and all the ladies of the ark are merely referred to um, as Mrs. Noah, etc. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, they are not named. Yeah, they are, their names are not recorded. Well, there you have it. So I was right. Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, and their wives. Yes. All right. Very good. Um, JD, tell me, please, what what is the contents and to what uh, subject does it pertain? Canon eight of the Blessed Code of Canon, canon Law. Canon eight. Yes, you are you are a current instructor in the general norms of the Code of Canon Law. Pertains to general norms. Yes, it does. I'm aware of that. <laughs> Maybe it has something to do with custom or... Okay, so Canon 7... We were just talking about it, J.D. Instructions? Is it about instruction? It, no, instructions come later. Promulgation. It's about promulgation. It's about a vocatio legis that laws take effect when they're promulgated unless they're unless there's a- that's paragraph two yes laws are promulgated in a manner determined by the legislator and begin to oblige a month after the day of promulgation unless the law itself establishes another period of time so for example for a particular the PPF, law, if but universal law, law takes effect when it's promulgated right uh yes universal law takes well i mean it's on the date of its issue in the acta unless they bind immediately from the very nature of the matter or the law itself specifies a longer or shorter. Oh, that's interesting. Boy, reading general norms is really instructive because sometimes modal proprios of the Holy Father don't have specific effective dates. And so we take that to mean there are no, there's no vocatio. But actually, a reading of Canon 8 would suggest rather that they take effect three months after they've been published in the Acta. Yes. That's the, that there's always a baseline, thankfully. In yeah. The you know, just reading – if all you did was read general norms every day, you'd be – your mind would be enriched by it. Your mind would be enriched by it, and your diocese would be better governed. Yes, that's right. Um, anyway, okay, JD, there are eight ladies mentioned in the canon, in the Roman canon. Would you would you care to have a stab at naming them? Agnes, Cecilia, Perpetua, Anastasia. Agnes, Cecilia, Perpetua, Anastasia, yes. Mary, the mother of God. Mary, the mother of God. Uh, what am I at? Uh... You have got Mary, Perpetua, Agnes, Cecilia, Anastasia. So you have got five of the eight. Cecilia. You've said that already. Agnes. Said that already. Perpetua. Yep. You've also said that as well. Cosmos. If you, Damien, Linus, Cleus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius, Cyprian, Lawrence, Grisaga. Those are the dudes. Those are the I'm asking for the ladies. Dudes. There were eight ladies. Hmm. Uh, I have five. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, I five maybe. I I feel like if you gave me a hint, I could probably get there. But I I I would like to enlighten you, JD. I would like to cast a light. Lucy, on. yeah, well done. Thank you. Six. This mystery of who the remaining two are. Mysteria. I'd like to help you. I'd like to help you puzzle through this this whodunit of Ms. a mystery. Marple? Oh, Agatha and Christie. No, Agatha, but yes. Oh, I thought I said that. No, I said yes. Agatha. And you, if you're lucky, J.D., if you're very lucky, you might just guess. Yeah, but Miss Marple was a good one. I mean, you'll give me give me half a point for saying Miss Marple. That was funny. I'm giving you a, I'm giving you a full point for getting Agatha, eventually. Okay, and then if I'm lucky. I hit like a bag of hammers on lady, you. Lady Luck. Um, yeah. Luck be a lady tonight. Never get out of my side. Luck, if you've ever been a lady to begin with. Luck, be a lady tonight. A lady doesn't leave her escort. It isn't fair. 
It isn't nice. Roll them, roll them, roll them, roll them. Do you know the next line? No, I don't. And blow but, on um, some other guy's dice. So luck, let a gentleman see how nice a dame you can be. I do not know the answer to this question. Perpetual? Felicity. Ah, uh, Felicity. Ah. Ah, yes. Felicity. All right. Uh, J.D., there are... Old um, Carrie Russell herself. Yes. There are many uh, feasts of Our Lady or Memorial of Our Lady or other days of the Church. The Immaculate Conception happens on the 8th. Uh, the Immaculate Conception does happen on the 8th. Can you offer me, please, two other Marian days uh, that occur on the 8th of a month? Mary's birthday, the Nativity of the Blessed Mother. The Nativity of the Blessed Mother on the 8th of, uh, at the 8th of September. Right. Congratulations. And there's one more. I didn't know that. It's it's a bit niche, but it's important nonetheless. I feel. Is it the? It's important if for no other reason than I'm confident you won't get it, and I I like to leave you unsatisfied. The feast of Our Lady of. See, gosh, so many people in the podcast, so many people listening are really just judging the hell out of me right now. I know that's pretty much the function <laughs> of this section of the show. Is it the feast of Our Lady of Lords, Fatima no. Walsingham, Knock? No. no. Oh. Is it the Feast of on, Juan Diego, St. Juan Diego? That's no, hardly a marriage feast. No, on the 8th of May. Oh, no, that's, that a, that's after the Immaculate Conception. You're right. Oh, the 8th of May, yes. The 8th of May. Is the Feast of Our Lady Patroness of the Order of Preachers? Oh, yes, the Feast of Our Lady OP. That's right. Yeah, I, I gosh, it's just that I thought, I didn't know if that remained in the, I thought I knew it was in the old calendar, obviously, but I didn't know. Sure, obviously, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Well, I think you did very well. I, you certainly were more right than wrong on all of that. And I, you know, I think a good time was had by all. And that's the whole. Point. Yes, indeed, a good time by all had. And uh, thank you, Ed. And um, uh, may you have a blessed eighth day yourself, and you too, as well, listeners. Um, thank you for uh, for listening and for uh, coming along on this journey with us. As it were, forget not that this episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. The University of Dallas invites you to check out their free five-episode video series, The Quest, at the link in the show notes or at udallas.edu slash pillar. The Quest at udallas.edu slash pillar. And Ed, a question for you. When you read that The Quest thing, um, do, you, uh, uh, do you find yourself thinking about the roots? <laughs> this is a musical reference I know. Um, am I right? Am, yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah. All right. Do you find your, um, well, no, it? Udallas.edu slash The Quest, the five video series from our sponsor of this week's episode, the University of Dallas. Wait, did I read that right? Yeah, you did. I, you, yeah. Udallas.edu. Oh, but it's not slash The Quest. Slash Pillar. No, slash Pillar. Is that what I said? No, you said such quest. This episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. The University of Dallas invites you to check out their free five-episode video series, The Quest, at the link in the show notes or at udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas slash edu. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. udallas.edu slash pillar. Please check it out because, um, you know, the University of Dallas is kind enough to sponsor us. And the first time I didn't say it right. And so now I've said it right. udallas.edu slash pillar. The Pillar Podcast. Nailed it. It's a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and editor-in-chief, JD Flint, with a fair amount of cold medicine today. Uh, Joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. We'll be back next week. 